Think back over your life and remember some of the dreams of excitement that woke you up an hour early. Have some of these dreams flickered and fizzled? We want you to discover a life purpose that time can't wear out as you grow older. Our study leader, Dave Wurtson, invites us to hear Christ's marching orders for the believer. The passage is Matthew 28, verses 16 through 20. Why do you get up in the morning? You say, David, that is an excellent question. I've been wondering that myself. Dad gets up, I remember the first thing I'd hear in the morning is this tremendous blowing of his nose. And I notice my younger brother Ron follows that same sequence. Any of you have a nose blower early in the morning and you hear this tremendous siren of a, you know, of a noise? But then you'd hear my dad whistling and my dad would be just ready to go. I mean, even without a cup of coffee, I mean, he's just ready to go. Most of us aren't like that. I, I did a talk show in Chicago, and there's a fella that's been on the air for about 20 years, and I got there about 7 o'clock, and I was rubbing my eyes, and I was saying, boy, Lord, I wish I could have had a cup of coffee before I got here. And I got on this show, and he's saying, oh, all of you are driving into Chicago today, and it's such a beautiful day, and we can thank the Lord for the peace of God, and we've got Dave Wurtzen here. And he says, how are you doing, Dave? And I go, I'm just doing fine. You know what I mean? This guy was up like he'd been up since about 4 o'clock in the morning. But I haven't been like that. But I do remember as a little kid the reason why I got up in the morning. The reason I got up in the morning was because the captain came on television. Now, let me date Carol's in my time. I remember this was before first grade. No, it was kindergarten. One of the horrible things about going to kindergarten is that I would miss the captain. I remember when I was in eighth grade. If you would have asked me, Dave, as an eighth grader, why do you get up in the morning? As an eighth grader, I would have said, because this Saturday, we are going to play St. Joseph's Junior High School. And we're going to play St. Joseph's for the county championship in New Jersey. And we've got a great chance to win that game. Now, I remember a great deal about that game. I remember we had a fullback that was left back for three years straight, I think. And so in the eighth grade, he was about six foot two and weighed about 225 pounds. And the one asset that he had that was really mind-boggling was not the fact that he could run over all their chubby linemen, but the big asset we had is that he could punt the ball in eighth grade like an NFL punter. Instead of punting at about 25 yards, like most eighth graders, he would spiral them up about 60 yards down the field. I remember that because I remember we ran over them. I remember the first time we punted, we all laughed because their receiver went down about 30 yards like for a normal punt. And we're all sitting in the huddle saying, watch this. You know, and the ball sailed over his head. And he cried as our lineman jumped on him. We won that game. My dad came and watched this, and I remember that. We won. Who cares? I remember a couple of guys, Petrosky or something, played guard. Some big Polish lineman I remember back there in the east. But who cares? So I moved into my college days. The captain was left behind, playing St. Joseph was left behind. I remember my freshman year in college. I remember sitting in class in absolute terror because, and I've shared this with you in the past, I remember our general chemistry teacher began the class by saying, there are 40 of you here today. Two weeks from now, there will be 20 of you. And I remember saying my whole history as a pre-med student depends upon this class and I was just sweating and I was in terror. If you would have asked me, Dave, why do you get up in the morning? I would say, I get up in the morning because I've got to pass 
General Kim. At the end of the semester, he gave out three A's, and I remember floating on cloud nine on that campus because I got one of them. Along with the other two guys, we were the elite on the campus. Nobody else could care less, but we thought it was very important. And so as an 18-year-old, to make an A in General Kim, that was the meaning of my life. Chemistry isn't that important to me anymore. What about your life? Why do you get up in the morning? And I want you to do what I just did. I just repeated some stories a lot of you that know me well have already heard. But they're kind of the story of my life. There's some things that there were times in my life where I lived for the captain, when I lived for junior high football, when I lived for college chemistry. And you can go on through your whole life. You know, you lived for this, you lived for that. The question I think that we need to raise in our mind as we close the life of Christ as we come to this Consummation Sunday, I believe that we need to get a grip on why in the world do we get up. Because I think one of the most important things that you need to get a grip on is you've got to get a hold of a light. You've got to get a hold of a purpose. You've got to get a hold of a meaning that's not going to run out like the captain, like football, like making A's in school. You've got to get a hold of a cause that you're going to be able to hang on to for a lifetime. And I'll just put it to you straight. I believe that as we've been studying the life of Christ, we have gotten a hold of a cause that will never run out of meaning. It will never become who cares about the captain, who cares about football, who cares about grades. There will never come a time when the abiding value of the living reality of Jesus Christ will be meaningless, will be empty, will be void. There will be times when emotionally you might feel that it's void. There will be times of discouragement. But the objective reality is, if you invest your life, I get up in the morning. I get up in the morning to represent the living, resurrected, glorified Jesus Christ. And it's not just a religious slogan, but it becomes the passion of your life then I believe that it will never be said that your life was lived in vain. Now, preachers are supposed to say that. But I want you to get a hold of that. I want you to think about it. I want you to ask yourself, where am I? As we close the Gospel of Matthew, which is where I'd like you to turn today, we're going to look at what's called the Great Commission. As soon as I mention that, I shudder because we've heard so many messages about the Great Commission that it becomes one of those familiar passages that easily gets left in the forgotten days of, oh, I already know that. But as we finish the life of Christ, which in the Gospel of Mark began with his baptism by John, in the Gospel of Matthew and Luke, it began with, who does this baby think that he is? And we found out that he is God, the Word becoming flesh and dwelling among us. And then we learned how the disciples came to follow him. And Jesus said, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. We went through the teaching of Christ, those of you that have been with us, and we've studied together the Beatitudes as the heartbeat of the teaching of Christ, and no man ever spoke like this man. We went through the Lord Jesus' impact against disease and saw that he had authority over disease. We saw that he had authority over the spirit world. We saw that he had authority over nature. We've walked with him through the last week. We've been focusing in on the meaning of that last week. And we've seen him do battle with the religious hierarchy of his day. We eventually saw him go to the cross and many of us were moved as we saw the different crowds approach the cross. 
and the different responses that these crowds had to the crucified Savior. And we heard those words shouted out, if you can save others, save yourself. And the irony of it broke upon our souls, realizing that in reality he could not save himself at that point and be able to save us. And so with the thief on the cross, many of us had our hearts melted. And we realized this is the Son of God. And he's the only one that can promise us today you will be with me in paradise. And then we went into the silence and the gloom and the death of the grave. We saw Jesus wrapped with linen and we saw the spices put around him and he was dead, dead, dead. We felt some of the agony that the disciples felt as they lost their great deliverer, their great Messiah. But then the last time that I spoke with you on a Sunday morning, we shared the greatest good news, the greatest objective reality that an audience can ever hear. And that was the fact that the tomb was not empty. It was empty of the body of Jesus, but it was not empty of the grave clothes. We looked into the tomb with John, and we saw and believed because there were all the linen garments neatly in the place. The headpiece alone separated everything in order. And the only explanation for those objective realities is that the body could not have been robbed. The disciples could not have robbed it. The soldiers could not have taken it. The only explanation is that Jesus left those grave clothes behind because he's alive. Now that is an old, old story. And one of the realities that I've been praying, and I want you all to join with me and pray, is that I think that the very familiarity of that story is the nesticizing us as believers. The challenge is that you and I who believe that Jesus is genuinely resurrected from the dead, have got to become radical about our commitment to the power of that resurrected Christ in meeting the needs of our own life and the needs of others. And so we close the life of Christ by looking at his great commands to the, to the disciples just before he ascends into heaven. Now you all know that the Lord Jesus made repeated appearances during the 40 days between his resurrection and the ascension. Matthew and Luke, at the end of their Gospels, kind of telescope those appearances. And in Matthew's Gospel, in Matthew 28, verse 16, Matthew telescopes one of these appearances and takes us not into the upper room where Jesus appeared on the night after he was resurrected, but Matthew takes us up into Galilee up into one of the most beautiful areas in the Holy Land, up into the mountainous region, a lot like Colorado. It says in verse 16 that the 11 disciples, which is a subtle reminder that Judas has betrayed his Lord, he has lost his life because he rejected the Savior. But the 11 disciples, they went to Galilee to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. Possibly it's the Mount of Transfiguration. I think if I were to take a guess, if, if I were to say, where, Dave, do you think is the place of the transfiguration, I believe I would choose Galilee, and I would choose at the very northern end of the Sea of Galilee, right near Caesarea Philippi, in the foothills of Mount Hermon. And the pine trees are there, and the source of the Jordan River is falling down, and Jesus had a special place in his heart for those mountains, a lot like Texans have a soft place in their heart for the mountains of Colorado. And Jesus meets with his 11 disciples, and, and Matthew would imply 
that there are more than the 11 disciples around. Because Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 15 that there was a time when over 500 people saw Jesus at once. Possibly this is the time. Because we're going to find out there's an assuming that there's more than the 11 that's present. It says in verse 17, as this crowd with the 11 join and are going to meet Jesus with great expectation in this beautiful retreat. It's kind of like going away to camp, you might say, in our culture. Only this time they're going to meet the resurrected Savior. In verse 17 it says, When they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. The very first thing I want to underline in our thinking today is that our response to the reality that Jesus is the incarnate Son of God, He is the one who is God in the flesh, who therefore has power over demons, over sickness, over life, over death, because He died in our place in the cross of Calvary, and because He rose again, the first thing that I want us to underline in our thinking is that we need to gather together with other disciples and worship. And as American believers, we are very much in danger of losing why we have gathered. As Americans, we are a consumer culture. We ask ourselves, whenever we do something, what did it do for me? What did the product do for me? We apply that to church. What did the singing do for me? Did I like it? Did I not like it? Was it the kind of music I like? Was it the kind of music I hate? We think about preaching. Was the preacher long? Was he short? Did he have a smooth flow of thought? Or did he use too many us? Or was his, his flow of sentence structure inconsistent? We as an American believers have become tremendously acute at remaining on the sidelines and making all kinds of evaluations, but we stay on the outside. And brothers and sisters, because I love you, you're going to miss it. You're going to miss one of the deepest meaningful realities of your life if you stay in that frame of mind. And I'm speaking to myself. Over the last couple of weeks, I've been able to do something that I don't usually do. And that's listen to somebody else. I think it's very healthy for every preacher to listen to somebody else because you forget what people go through as they're sitting there. And I found it was so easy, especially as someone who does it myself, to be evaluating. You know, well, that was a smooth point. That was not. That was an illustration that touched home. The speaker really had his audience. The speaker didn't. But I stay on the outside as long as I talk like that. When the disciples saw the resurrected Jesus, they did not stay on the outside. They got down on their knees and they worshipped him. In fact, the word for worship here means to get down on your knees. And I want to ask every one of us, are we down on our knees before the Savior? If your heart is obstinate, if it's prideful, if you're fighting the Word because you haven't submitted to the resurrected Christ, then you'll miss the Word. No matter how effectively, no matter how powerfully the Spirit might be speaking upon your heart, if you resist with your will, you'll miss it and you will not worship. 
Because worship is to recognize Jesus as the King. It's to recognize Jesus as the Lord. We had a great time at the Valentine's party. That night I was involved in putting tables up and kind of doing some of the things that Mary had commanded me to do. And uh, I settled in the back because I had to check up something about the sound or something, so I sat in the back. And Bob began to speak. And he talked about marriage. He really did a heavy-duty heavy message for a Valentine's Day. So that was one of the first things. I'm just going to be honest with you. I think that's the only way you can really get reality going. I'm thinking in my heart, you know, Bob, this is awfully heavy for a Valentine's bank. Trying to go through Romans 7 at a romantic evening. And he starts to talk about the conflict of the flesh and the new nature in Christ. I say, Bob, you know, Mary's all dressed up. She looks sharp. Let's not get heavy. And then he started on something else, and he ends his message with these kind of words. Jesus can hold together your marriages. Jesus is the only answer for broken marriages. And I'm saying, Bob, there's some psychological principles that we need to keep in mind. We need to have a lot of insight into this problem. And I hear these words, Jesus is really the answer. Jesus is the only one that can really help us to keep our lives together. Now, I believe that, and a lot of you believe that. But I'm just being honest with you. There was a part of me inside that's saying, it's too simplistic. It's too easy. Bob, if you only knew the problems of this group, that's so simple. You know what I was doing? I wasn't worshiping. There's a part of you that doesn't worship. There's a part of you that stays distant. You've got to learn to deal with that part of you because you'll never be set free. And Jesus will not ask us to swallow or forget our minds. He doesn't ask us to forget our emotions. He doesn't bulldoze our will and force us. But he asks us to willingly come to him and acknowledge him as Lord. Who is Lord in your life today? Worship begins by getting down on our knees. And at that Valentine's party, I had to join with Bob and say, yes, Lord. I reconfirm my commitment that Jesus is the answer. I'm willing to be radical and go for it with all my heart that to bring Jesus to bear upon the problems of my own life and my own family and in the family of others. Brothers and sisters, we need to recapture that commitment of worship to Jesus as the resurrected Savior. You see, what we've tried to do in the life of Christ, and you need to nail it down in your own life, you need to go back through the Gospels. I would encourage you to read through the Gospels. Just read them like you would read a novel. And say, Lord Jesus, I want this thing to become real for me. I want to hear it and I want it to move me. And I'm going to make a commitment. And we need to nail it down. Do I believe he rose again from the dead? And if we believe with all of our hearts that he rose again from the dead, then it's going to make us challenge our society. We're going to bring him to bear upon every problem that we might face. And that's where it all begins. And I want you to covet with me. I, I think if we pray during the week, if we pray for one another, and we ask the Lord to help us to worship, to get down on our knees as individuals, if we ask the Lord to help us to get down on our knees together as a group, we have just begun to see the power of God moving among us. Don't miss it. Don't miss it.
And the way that we don't miss it is by worshiping, by getting down on our knees before the Savior. Say, Dave, why should I get down on my knees before the Savior? Say, Dave, I doubt. Well, look at the next statement. It says in Matthew chapter 28, verse 17, that some worship, they worshiped him, but some doubted. Don't you love that? No, you don't really love that. I love it because the Bible's so honest. I mean, just stop and think about this. I mean, Jesus is there in a glorified body. He has already appeared to the disciples several times. He's eaten with them. In Luke's gospel, Luke takes you through this intricate disclosure of the resurrected Christ. He has the resurrected Christ appear to the two disciples on the Emmaus Road. He has that resurrected Christ then appear to the disciples in the upper room. They can't believe it's him. So he says, listen, guys, to prove it to you that I'm alive, give me some fish to eat. And you've got this concrete, objective reality of the resurrected Savior eating this fish. And you can just see him as a Jew picking it up and eating it. And the disciples are there gawking at him. But then he appears to them again in Galilee. And I'm not sure that it's the 11 doubting. That's why I think it might be a broader circle. Thomas doubted. The other disciples, like Peter and John, doubted when Mary Magdalene, the first response that a lot of disciples had to the resurrected Christ was that they doubted. And I have to admit that I doubt at times. Do you ever doubt? Do you ever doubt that Jesus rose again from the dead? Sure. If I were to ask you, do you ever doubt? Yes, I doubt. You doubt. You say, well, Dave, what do I do about my doubts? Well, some of you, because of your doubts, you're going to wander right in the wrong direction. This is the place to be when you're doubting. This is the place to ask your questions in the community of faith. One of the things that I want you to realize is that the only way to find the answer and the cure for doubts is worshiping with a community of disciples. You know, that's why when you start to say, I'm not sure Jesus rose again from the dead, the very first thing that comes to your mind, well, I shouldn't fellowship. I don't want to fellowship with other believers. I mean, I'm hypocritical if I do that. I need to get my questions answered. I need to get my life put back together. I need to get all these doubts cleared up. I need to be really confident like Dave is or like Al is. Or I really need to be confident like Wallace McWhorter is or Jerry Waffer or someone like that. Then I'll really come. If you only knew all those guys that I mentioned, they have times of doubt. We all do. But instead of running away from the fellowship believers, we need to run to it. Because one of the affirmations of the reality of the resurrection is going to be found in the community of worship in the midst of all the brokenness and all the hypocrisy at times that covers all of our life. We find the resurrected Christ today revealing himself by grace in the community of those who believe. So don't run away when you doubt. The cure for your doubts is to sit and listen to the voice of Christ through the Holy Word of God in the community of faith. And you'll go through life. There will be times of great confirmation, times of doubt and fear. But you know, the times when I doubt and fear, it doesn't mean that objectively that Jesus has disappeared. Because the objective risen Lord, the things that we've been learning about the life of Christ are not my feelings about the life of Christ. 
They're objective facts about the life of Christ. And they never change. My feelings can come and go, but the fact that the tomb, the grave clothes were left behind, the fact that the disciples were radically changed from men of doubt to men and women of confidence and courage and boldness, the very fact that we're still talking and worshiping and praising the Son of God today is all objective reality. And one day when we're called home, our faith, our confidence in those unseen realities will become sight. But until that day, we need the worshiping, fellowshipping community of believers. And then we're going to fellowship with one another forever. So it begins down on our knees in a place of worship before our Savior. But the Savior, as we bow before him, as we worship this king, has a command that he wants to give us. And let's look what Jesus said to his disciples. In verse 18, then Jesus came to them. It's kind of like he drew near. That might have been why some of them were doubting. They might not have recognized the Lord because it might have been like when the disciples saw him on the shore of Galilee and they looked at him walking towards them from afar and they didn't recognize him at first. That might explain some of the doubt. But Jesus came near to them just like he comes near to us in the person of his spirit and he said this, Number one, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Now that is an incredible statement. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Now what does that mean? That means that there is no place in all of this earth where Jesus Christ does not have jurisdiction. Brothers and sisters, I want you to get a hold of the reality that there is no place in all the earth where Jesus doesn't have authority. As we are gathered together as a community of faith, one of the reasons we should worship our Lord, one of the reasons why we should be willing to give our life for this Lord is there's no place on earth where he doesn't have authority. Brothers and sisters, some of our vision is so limited. I can remember being on the streets of Cairo, and I felt so far away from the Lord. Islam is heavy. If you ever visit an Islamic country, Islam is some of the darkest, gloomiest areas on all this planet. And as I walked the streets of Cairo, one day while I was running, I, I felt I wouldn't take my life in my own hands and I ran near the pyramids. And running down the street, I was thinking as I was jostled by these different Islamic groups. I remember thinking, Lord, this is so far away from a nice evangelical Western American culture. And I remember thinking as a young man saying, Lord, do you have any authority here? Maybe you don't have jurisdiction here, honestly. But you know what? The risen Lord says he has authority in Egypt. How many of us have been praying, Lord, bring about your authority in Egypt? There's a church in Egypt. There are born-again believers in Egypt. Since I was there, I, I've, I've shared with you how I've read some articles about some stirring, even some work in the ancient Coptic church, which goes right back to the second century, maybe the first century. And men are beginning to rise up and teach the Holy Word of God again. The World Evangelization Fellowship is a consortium of believers all over the world, most of them in the third world, like you, 
banding together to bring the gospel into all the earth. In one of these Islamic countries, this Islamic soldier, before he came to know the Lord, his job in his army was to take the lives of believers. He was to take the lives of believers. And he would go from one village to the next, taking their life. And this soldier went to one village and he asked at the village, is there anybody here that's a believer? And they said, yes, just up the road in that little hovel up there, there's a believing couple. The soldier went up, knocked on the door. The husband answered the door and he said, I have come to kill you, not your everyday normal introduction. The soldier said, gather all your family. You deny Jesus as the Christ. You deny Jesus as the Messiah or die. Their little girl ran up in front of her daddy, looked at the soldier right in the eye, and he said, Sir, before you take our lives, may we worship, may we pray to Jesus. And the hardened Islamic policeman and soldier said, Sure, go right ahead. Little girl got down on her knees in front of her daddy and began to pray. The moment she began to pray, a wall of fire came up between that little girl and that Islamic policeman. And it stayed burning vehemently until she rose from her knees. When she got up off her knees, the Islamic policeman just turned and ran. And it was the beginning of the moment when the spirit began to move in his heart. He asked himself, what God does this little girl have? And later he came to know Christ as his Savior. All authority in heaven and in earth. And brothers and sisters, that's not magic. Hebrews 11 tells us that it doesn't always happen. It says some passed through the fire. It says some even lost their lives. But brothers and sisters, as I talk to you about all authority in heaven and earth, this is the greatest wave of missions in all the earth. Last night I was reading the testimony of an Indian missionary, a boy that came to know the Lord as his Savior in southern India in an area where there's many Christians. There's been since the first century. This boy told how George Werner of Operation Mobilization came and spoke to his village. And he cried out to the need of the southern Indians to reach the northern Indians where the gospel wasn't running, where they had never heard. And this young teenage boy, 105 pounds, says he just felt compelled to the Lord to go and he joined a gospel team. And he told how he went from one village to the other evangelizing. Told of wondrous movements of the Spirit. But he also saw that it didn't last. It didn't hold on. The Lord in his life and the providence of God brought him to study at Criswell Bible School. And he came and studied the Bible. And while he was at Criswell Bible School, he became a pastor in downtown Dallas and had the great thrill of ministering to people. And the Holy Spirit began to cause him to realize the next command that's written in Matthew 28. You see, the fact that we have been given all authority in all of the earth. And that's why we must lift up our eyes. The challenge what I'm trying to do today is I want us to get really focused 
I want every single one of us to start to think of why do I get up in the morning and I want the answer to be because I want to worship the resurrected Christ today and because I want to make disciples. You see, we've got it all wrong. As American believers, we have settled for something much less than the Lord Jesus ever commanded us. He didn't say, all authority has been given in heaven and earth. All the pastors that have been trained at Dallas Theological Seminary make disciples. Those that are specially called apart to be full-time Christian workers, quote, quote. They are to make disciples. I want you to notice something else. He didn't say, I want you to go into all the world and share the four spiritual laws with all the world. He didn't say that. He said much more than that. I want you to listen to what he said. And this needs to be the purpose of why we get up in the morning. I want all of you to understand. You have a gift in that beautiful body of Christ, that beautiful group of believers. In fact, you probably have several special enablements by the power of the Holy Spirit. In fact, there are ideas that the Holy Spirit wants to generate in your mind about how to make disciples that we haven't even thought of yet. And this needs to be an incubator for the creative ways that we can go into all the world and make disciples. Jesus said that the command that we are to live for the reason we're to get up in the morning, when we get up in the morning and we drink the cup of coffee and I walk in and say, what are you going to live for today? Why are you alive? The Lord says, the command is, I am a slave, I am a servant. I will make disciples today. I'm going to say that again. And I'm going to say it because I don't want you, I love you enough, I don't want you to waste the precious gift of life. If you get up in the morning to watch Captain Kangaroo, there's going to come a time when the captain will mean zilts to you. If you get up in the morning to win junior high football games, there will come a time when junior high football means zip to you. If you get up in the morning because you want to climb up the ladder in your business, I want to make it in my company, I want to make money, I want to be able to travel, there will come a time, just like the captain, when it will mean zip to you. But if you get up in the morning and you say, Lord, I'm going to be involved in the command to make disciples, it'll never become zip. It'll be a torch that will shine in your hands. You can be lying in a hospital bed. I talked to a lady yesterday who said, my daddy has walked with the Lord for many years. He can't hear very well. He's 90. He can't hear very well. He can't see. What can I do to encourage him? And I scratched my head. And I said, you know, I said, as a daughter, tell your daddy that he can talk to the king of the universe. And tell him if he's bedridden and he's got to stay at home, tell him he can still be involved in the greatest, most powerful reality that's sweeping this world. Not only this world, but all of heaven. He can pray. He can pray for me. He can pray for believers around the world. He can pray. And nothing can separate them. In the quietness of his own mind, he can commune with the Father and be part of this tremendous purpose. And I said, you can hug your daddy and you can communicate the warmth of Jesus and the reality that his body, though it's decaying, is, is filled with a spirit 
that will last forever and ever. As believers, we need to make it our commitment to be disciples. Now, what is a disciple? You know, a lot of us have the idea that what a disciple is, it's Francis of Assisi, who goes around with his sandals on, a torn-up bathrobe. When he sees a poor person on the road, he takes off his torn-up bathrobe and gives that to him. Sometimes that is what a disciple is. Sometimes that is what the Lord calls someone to. But in its most fundamental sense, a disciple, a disciple is a follower. The life of discipleship begins when the Lord Jesus looks at your life and says, follow me. It begins at a moment of faith. When it's like you meet Jesus and you learn that Jesus was baptized by John the Baptist, that he did miracle in this earth, that he died on the cross in your place, that he rose again. And the Holy Spirit says, will you depend upon the Christ of the Holy Scriptures alone for your salvation? It's like Jesus calls you to himself and says, will you put all your confidence for eternal life in me? The life of discipleship begins at that moment of faith. You yourself might not know exactly when that moment was. But it does begin in a moment of time. It's when you move from depending upon your own personal strength and you depend upon what Christ has done for you. So in that sense, every believer that has received Christ into their life, that's become a child of God, is an incipient disciple, a beginning learner. A beginning learner. You are a beginning follower. Now what needs to happen? One of the problems of the culture down here of evangelicalism is some of you were raised in a culture where that was the only thing you heard. Every single Sunday you learned for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. And you would close the service and you people would raise their hand, they'd walk the aisle, and people would be saved. And that's all of your Christian experience. You've heard that over and over and over and over again. You have heard the message of, of the gospel and praise God for the message of the gospel. Some of you, though, became very stagnated in that because the message of the gospel was presented every single Sunday to the same people. It was like fishing in a great big fishbowl where all the fish had already been caught about 4,500 times already. So some of you as little kids responded to the gospel. And you can remember a time in your young life where you were warm and you were in love with the Lord. But as you grew older, all you heard was the gospel. And so some of you have decided, well, this Jesus thing doesn't work. This, the gospel is a glorious message, but, you know, what, what happens now? I don't see it working in my marriage. I don't see it working in this church. I, go to, I went to some board meetings. Even as a teenager, I went to some board meetings in my church, and the guys that were supposed to be leaders, they didn't pray. They fought. They were furious with one another. In fact, I went through a whole church split. And some of you decided, I guess Jesus doesn't work. And you've forgotten the command. Jesus said, go into all the world and not just make baby Christians. He said, go into the world and make disciples. And we're not going to make disciples until we become disciples. 
And a disciple is one who's made a choice to follow a master. And one of the essential realities of that discipleship is to have an intimate relationship with the teacher. That begins the moment that you're saved, but it needs to be continually nurtured. You see, when Jesus used the word disciple, he didn't mean just going like in education in our day. We got a lot of kids that are going to college right now. And if I were to say, do you have a personal relationship with your teachers? Most of you would say no. My teacher deals with hundreds of students. My teacher hardly knows my name. He reads my name off. Your idea of being a learner is to go and listen to a lecture and to learn facts and to write the facts down on a test and then you say, I've passed the course. That's not discipleship in any sense of the word. Discipleship is much more than that. Discipleship is having a personal relationship with the master. Jesus called the original 12, and he lived with them, he ate with them, they traveled together, he invested three years of his life. And I want to challenge you, every one of you, the crying need that I would pray that the Holy Spirit would just shake this group about. You that are older, there are hungry little babies that need you. They need you. They need you every single week. They need you to set up luncheons with them. They need you to set up time with them. They need you to be there to teach them how to begin. And it's not just something for a few elites. It's not just something that a pastor teacher does. It's what every single one of us as believers have been commanded to do. We are to make disciples. And it just simply means that we are to help one another to become followers of the Lord Jesus. And a personal relationship that's developing week by week is the way for that to develop. Second of all, a disciple not only has a personal relationship with the master, but this is the tough one. We like warm relationships as Americans. But it can't just end with warm relationships. It's, it's got to be obedience. Jesus said, if you love me, you'll do what I say. Very fundamentally, our church family has wrestled with very serious problems in marriages. In fact, some of you have really been discouraged because marriages fall apart. In fact, in our culture, we kind of have the idea, I don't know. I don't know. It just happened. You know one of the greatest challenges is going to be? Is will you and I believe that Jesus can love us enough and has the wisdom that if we obey him, we can stay together and that we can find the meaning of life in obedience to him. And I would like some of you to really think about that. Do you believe with all your heart that obedience to the word of God can bring us to life and give us meaning?